parvovirus, or what we'll call CPV for the rest of this podcast, is a common pathogen affecting young dogs that are unvaccinated, undervaccinated, or immunosuppressed. Without treatment, CPV can be life-threatening due to severe fluid losses and electrolyte derangements secondary to anorexia, vomiting, and diarrhea. In order to ensure the best outcome, treatment should be aimed towards symptomatic supportive care, aggressive fluid therapy, antiemetics, antibiotic therapy, and nutritional support. In this series of Vet Girl podcasts, we'll review the etiology, clinical signs, treatment, overall prognosis, and preventative measures for canine parvovirus. CPV was originally discovered in 1967 and resulted in mild diarrhea. Since then, the virus has evolved to CPV2 in 1978 with additional evolution of subtypes CPV2A, CPV2B, and more recently, CPV2C. CPV2B is thought to be more pathogenic and has replaced CPV2A as the cause of parvovirus throughout the United States. Canon parvovirus is a small, single-stranded, non-envelope DNA virus that preferentially infects rapidly dividing cells such as the bone marrow, gastrointestinal tract, and myocardium. There's an increased prevalence during warm summer months, July through September. Spread occurs via ingestion of bodily fluids, such as vomitus or diarrhea, that contains the virus. CPV replicates quickly and infects the intestinal crypt epithelium by day 4 of infection. Clinical signs are thought to appear within 4 to 10 days post-exposure, while antibody development occurs approximately 5 days after exposure. Parvovirus is often seen in more urban environments, with affected dogs coming from poor husbandry backgrounds. As a result, pet owners may also have financial limitations. Dogs affected typically are less than 6 months of age, between 6 to 20 weeks of age. Typically, there is no gender predilection, although one study reported that in dogs greater than 6 months of age, intact male dogs were overrepresented. Certain breeds are thought to be at increased risk, including the American Pitbull Terrier, Rottweilers, German Shepherd Dogs, and Doberman Pinschers. In studies, breed, age, gender, and body weight did not correlate to survival with outcome or duration of hospitalization in one study. So clinically, what do we see with parvovirus? We can see clinical signs such as anorexia, lethargy, malaise, hypersalivation, secondary to nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and hematochesia. In mild cases, diarrhea may not be seen yet, by the way. Classic physical exam findings for the parvovirus patient include dehydration, such as prolonged skin tenting or sunken eyes, cachexia, hypothermia or fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, paler, prolonged capillary refill time, hypersalivation, poor pulse quality, signs of hypovolemic shock, fluid-filled loops of intestine, malodorous diarrhea staining, dyspnea, or even death. Now, don't forget to rule out other differential diagnoses for patients exhibiting similar clinical signs, including other viral infections such as coronavirus, other bacterial infections such as E. coli, parasitism, intestinal bacterial infections such as salmonella or campylobacter, anisusception, or foreign body obstruction. So how do we diagnose canine parvovirus? The use of a fecal antigen ELISA test is the most rapid, cost-effective way of diagnosing CPV for the practitioner. Fecal antigen ELISA is sensitive to detect both CPV2B and CPV2C. Other tests that can be considered include PCR, 
virus isolation, and hemagglutination inhibition, but these are less commonly performed. That said, in a dog that tests negative in an in-house fecal antigen ELISA test, a PCR done on feces can be considered due to its high sensitivity. A real-time PCR can improve the sensitivity and specificity and allows for rapid detection of CPV2. The diagnosis of CPV can be more challenging if these diagnostic tests are not readily available. As a decision to put an immunocompromised, young, immunologically naive puppy into isolation poses large risk if the patient truly does not have canine parvovirus. Note that the modified live vaccine for CPV also replicates in the mucosal epithelium of the GI tract. So theoretically, the presence of low levels of antigen can be detected by various tests, resulting in a false positive result. However, a recent study showed that various types of modified live CPV2 vaccines did not produce levels of antigen that were detectable on a SNAP ELISA parvovirus antigen test within seven days of vaccine. Depending on the financial limitations of pet owners, the ideal gold or what I call Cadillac standard for the parvovirus patient includes a parvoviral fecal antigen test, a complete blood count and blood smear, a biochemistry panel, a venous blood gas to look at acid-base status and electrolytes, a fecal float and smear, a big four, what I call a PCV, total solids, blood glucose, and azo, a blood pressure, a PCR if your fecal antigen test is negative but you're still suspicious of canine parvovirus, abdominal radiographs, a colloid osmotic pressure, and a possible abdominal ultrasound if you suspect an intussusception. Unfortunately, a lot of owners can't afford this gold standard or this Cadillac standard, so you can also do the silver or what I call the Honda standard, which is going to include a parvoviral fecal antigen test, a CBC with blood smear, biochemistry panel or venous blood gas, a fecal float, and blood pressure. Sadly, a lot of owners can't afford the silver standard plan either, which then moves us to the bronze or Yugo standard, which is a parvoviral fecal antigen test, a blood smear, a big four, again, a PCV, total solids, blood glucose, and azo, and a venous blood gas with electrolytes. In our next Vet Girl podcast, we'll review clinical pathologic findings and treatment for canine parvovirus. Stay tuned.